Alright, welcome back to the Diabolical Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kane, and I apologize, I have not been keeping up with this podcast uh, because that's just how life's been. Uh, I, I could make excuses, but I'm not going to do it. Uh, but but thank you for for listening. This is a uh, this is one of my favorite podcasts that I've that I've put out. Um, mainly thanks to my guest. Uh, this week's guest is Austin Wintry, whose name you probably recognize if you've been paying attention at all to the video game industry or uh, especially the music of the video game industry. Uh, Wintry was the composer of Journey, uh, the game that sort of took the world by storm back in 2012, became a huge huge success story for uh, that game company and for uh, Austin himself who whose star certainly rose after after that game sort of blew our collective minds uh, it's it's one of those games that I recommend everyone plays uh, it's 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 something you can play in one sitting and you can do even if you're not a gamer uh, it's just it, it tells such an interesting story without you know any any dialogue whatsoever it's all it's storytelling is visual and audio um, told through with the sights you see, the, the game mechanics themselves, the puzzles, the action, and of course, the music. Which is what we're here for today. Ten years ago, Journey came out, and now Austin Wintery has sat down with the London Symphony Orchestra and put together a completely reimagined soundtrack. So the score, as beautiful as it was <clears throat> back in the day, uh, it is it, <laughs> it really comes to life with the with the power of a full uh, and, and, you know, incredible orchestra behind it. Uh, I've listened to this now, and it's it's absolutely stunning. It's breathtaking. And um, so, yes, listen to the podcast. Austin has lots of good stories to tell. He is he has a very um, he has a, he's very forthcoming and easy to 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 talk with. Uh, <laughs> he is uh, he's a, he's a very interesting guy. So. Uh, yeah, he has lots of interesting stories about his time, you know, working on the game and getting into the industry and and all of that. So uh, give it a listen and let me know what you think. And thank you for your patience with this off again, on again, on again, off again podcast of mine. Maybe I should just call it that from now on, the on again, off again podcast. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, anyways, uh, thank you very much and enjoy. Yeah, so yes, thank you for doing this um, on this uh, kind of, this kind of a, a big occasion, 10 year anniversary. It's crazy. You know, it, it, it really is. It doesn't stop getting um, surreal that it's been that much time. Um, uh, yeah, it flies. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it's, 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 it's that classic paradox where it really does simultaneously feel like it was much longer ago than that because mm -hmm. um, the overwhelming majority of my most meaningful life memories have taken place in the last 10 years. And I've just had so many career opportunities and met new people and all kinds of things that um, it seems like, you know, what was I even doing with my life before <laughs> 2012, which is, you know, which is ridiculous, but there's just so much changed so fast when the game came out that it just doesn't seem like, it could only have been 10 years. And yet at the same time, it does also feel like it just came out yesterday. Yeah. And it's amazing to me to think that 10 years in people still talk about it. People, I mean, even just by virtue of your interest in having this conversation, the fact that it's still 
in some sense newsworthy um, is just baffling. You know, things tend to expire. You know, it's like we all mm-hmm. move on and onto the new thing we're excited about usually within a week. Um, and that's okay. I've, I don't begrudge that. Like I'm just as guilty of it. Um, but yeah, uh, it, yeah it's sort of, it's, it's like, you know, I, I, I also, you know, from my, from my perspective, it feels like journey is an older game than 10 years also, not because of, you know, anything about the game other than it feels like a classic, you know, right. it's a classic, but it's only 10 years old. Um, it's, you know, it's one of those games, uh, that I always tell everyone to play like people who don't play games. I say play journey. People it was the sort of unofficial motto of that game company while we were working. They said, we, we, we want to make games for people that don't know yet that they love games. Yeah. Uh, so I love, I love that you're kind of evangelizing to the so-called non-gamers. Um, that's awesome. Well, everyone's got a gamer inside them somewhere. <laughs> I definitely feel that way because I look at it, you know, nobody would say, I categorically won't read books or I won't <laughs> watch movies or TV shows. It's like some people are junkies and are super diehard. Or some people are like, you know, the only book I ever read was Lord of the Rings um, uh, or Harry Potter or something. Or, or somebody, you know, is like the only TV shows I watch are Ken Burns documentaries or whatever. But like the market is wide enough that that there are options for, you know, essentially everybody. And I know that it was overtly part of the whole founding of that game company uh, was the goal that that. Um, that be fixed, you know, that they, 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 they try to add more to the to the pot so that if you're not jonesing for the next Call of Duty or, you know, Dark Souls or whatever, like there's more options for you. I say this as a frustrated Elden Ring player. Oh, man, I'm really enjoying that game. <laughs> oh, I, I, I got to say, I don't think I'm at a point in my life anymore where difficulty curves that steep or my thing anymore. I'm, or, yeah, and oh, or yeah. I just have to face that I'm not as... I'm not as good as I wish I were. I find that summoning is really key for the frustrating bits. Because um, I, I definitely look back when I was younger and I think I had more patience for <laughs> yeah. failure. And now I'm like, I don't know how many times I can do this. <laughs> but I still love it. Um, okay. Yeah, you know, Journey came out. Well, I guess Journey came out similar to the time frame around when the first Dark Souls came out. I feel like that was a really unique time, really unique moment for games. Um, especially indie games and smaller games like Journey, there, there was just sort of this. It was it was kind of a, a really perfectly timed release. I feel like because it was before it the the indie game market and the market for games like that became so flooded with content. Like if you look at like the Steam releases in the last ten years, every year there's more and more and more games. As a journalist, it's hard to keep up with so many titles. I, I feel like I was more just more aware of everything coming out each month in no 2012, kidding. 2013. And now it's like, I don't even know. I don't know half the time. I, well, it's so much, you know, I remember, you know, I did these um, games called the banner saga and the first one came out yeah. in 2014. And I signed on to the first game, like, you know, a month after journey came out in 2012 and we spent about two years working on it. And I remember an interesting statistic where, um, when Banner Saga 1 came out in 2014 in the spring, if I remember, um, on Steam, something in the neighborhood of 70 games came out that same month. Um, and so the game, in, also it had had a successful Kickstarter, 
Kickstarter, but like it had, it, it didn't have a huge challenge standing out amongst mm-hmm. 70 by the time the third, and it was always planned as a, as a trilogy by the time Banner Saga three came out in, uh, I want to say 2019, um, 2018, 2019, um, that same month, it was like 500 games came out. Uh, so, you know, there was a, just, you know, more than five-fold increase yep. in the number of games per month on Steam in that span. And Journey was even two years before the 70 per month. Uh, you know, that was 2012 versus 2014. So it's like there has been just this truly exponential curve. Also, I, I often say to folks, you know, the number one word that I'll just repeat ad nauseum with regard to Journey for a million reasons is gratitude. Mm-hmm. Um, so much is so out of our control. And, the, and as you said, there's so much that was just the luck of timing because Journey and its simplicity really stood out um, in 2012. Um, but there's so many games that I would say are of a similar vein. Now, you could argue that maybe Journey helped inspire them in the 10 years yeah. since. But if we kind of set aside that concept, uh, and, and I don't presume as much, then... I, I think that the game just on the face of it would have so much harder of a time. And I don't know that it would do particularly well today. And and even being exactly the same, you know, it, it's just, yeah, it was one of those truly lucky. But never mind the fact also on top of that, that TGC had this like three in a row winning streak of flow. It's like niche hit, but definitely got that underground cult following kind of vibe. And then flower kind of like, just cracked the edges of the mainstream. Like I remember it was nominated in like the spike VGAs and stuff. And so it was getting, you know, alongside whatever halo and call of duty were contemporaneous to it, that sort of thing. So journey was kind of like able to hit that escape velocity and, 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 and just sort of become more broadly known. All those things seem to just be so circumstantial. So like, you want to, you always want to feel like, yes, I did a good job or yes, I, you know, I'm so clever. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, dude, if the game had come out, you know, like a week earlier, you know, what if things had been different? You know, that sort of thing. What if a global pandemic had hit, you know, in the middle of developing that game? I mean, right. Like, yeah, there is, there's, oh, I mean, sure. there's, it's totally true. There's so much, there's so much luck involved in everything, obviously. But, but I mean, the game itself was pretty brilliant. Like the soundtrack, obviously, is one of my favorite video game soundtracks of all time. Um and it just fits the game so well. There's very few games that have a soundtrack that is that feels like it is just interwoven with the game experience itself. Um, and I, I wonder if like well, like very kind of how, how did that how did that come about? Like how did the actual how is how is it that that game and its music are so tightly woven together and and feel so natural together? Ah, uh, well, it's very kind of you to say that they are, you know, just in the spirit of what we were just saying, I couldn't even guarantee that that would be the outcome, even though it was um, undoubtedly the goal. And the long and short of it is it's pure elbow grease. You know, it's not that I had some divine insight. I spent three years working tightly with that game company. You know, the flower came out. I went to the flower launch party. I didn't work on flower, but just as a supportive friend of the company, uh, went and I remember Genova and I talking kind of in a back area and he said, you know, let's get dinner, uh, you know, tomorrow or whatever. And love, I'd love to show you kind of what we're thinking of next. And we went to dinner, had a little 
catch up. And he started telling me about the, the third game and, and pretty much everything he told me that day is what the game came to be. I mean, it was very skeletal um, and there were a lot of details that were not quite there. Most notably, there wasn't a mountain in the distance. It was more like just traversal, you know, and, and then, and then very quickly, Matt Nava, the art director, um, um, became like he, he had, they, they had this idea of a kind of like Canyon wall with a crack in it. Um, and, you know, so it's clear that you're heading to the, that kind of destination. And then that evolved into the idea of a mountain. It's just so kind of universal of a symbol of like this thing to, to summit, to beat, to, to, to sort of, uh, to, to, to defeat as it were in the, in the non-combative sense. Like I, I beat the mountain kind of thing, such a classic and archetypal sort of symbol. Um, but, um, uh, but the notion of a desert and all that was all very clear. And so I remember he called me down the next day and we got into a little bit more detail after that initial dinner. And he said, you know, I really want the emotions to be the, at the forefront, which was always the case flow and flower were the same. So, you know, he likes to start with music. He likes to let music be the thing that helps guide the team as much as the concept art where it's like, okay, because Genova works a bit backwards from other game developers. It's worth explaining. Some Most developers will say, like, I've just developed a really cool, you know, time-looping mechanic. And so, like, it's really fun. Like, a game like Braid or something. You know, like, I've, I've got this really cool thing, and it can really be an interesting... It can be an interesting X factor in a 2D platformer, for example. I'm not... I don't know how John Blow made that game. I'm just using it as a random example. Uh, but the idea of, you know... He, here's my cool mechanic. And now I want to craft a story and an art direction and all that, which seems to kind of fall out of this mechanic. And then, and then at the end you play it and you go, Oh, this game feels like X and you, and, and the emotional experience is descriptive, but Genova it's the, it's completely backwards from that. For him, it's prescriptive. He goes, I want to feel lonely. What game mechanics would make me feel lonely? What art style would make me feel lonely? What narrative would make me feel lonely? Like to him, it's always reverse engineering from the emotional starting point. And he likes to use music as the way to kind of define the emotion in a way that everybody can agree on. Because if you just say, oh, you know, lonely for one person might be, you know, wistful and nostalgic and another person might be like cripplingly painful, you know, like lonely, all emotions are going to have a wide spectrum of, have, of interpretations. And so he likes to put a piece of music as it were up on the chalkboard and say that the way this piece makes you feel, you know, the level design, the art direction, the character design, a lot of the, like everything should chase that. And obviously it's not quite so pure. It's not like I scored the game before they made it, but, um, we would always start, you know, every time we kind of, the, the development would move onto a new area of the game, a new level, as it were, we would always start with music. Uh, and I would create just like, you know, we'd talk about the goal of that part, you know, like in, in the case of Journey, Genova had very much this uh, beyond the Joseph Campbell hero's journey aspect of it. There was a, this is one, this is sort of the metaphor for a human life. So, you know, you start off at birth, then there's the kind of um, sort of toddler, like getting your sea legs kind of idea and, you know, learning to walk. And then and then um, I remember very particularly, for example, the, the open desert, the third stage of the game um, 
on the album, I refer to it as threshold and it's kind of the part that creates the illusion of almost being an open world game uh, and uh, sort of the poster image section of the game. He always said, this should feel like a, you're a teenager. Um, and it's the, it, or actually this is, this is just before that, like, you know, kind of end of adolescence where it's a big playground Nothing really can go wrong. You have no perception of dangers in the world. And then you migrate from there into kind of teenage and young adulthood with the surfing area of the game uh, where it's now, you know, I'm powerful. I can do anything. I, I am, you know, way overinflated sense of yourself in terms of your ability to accomplish things. And, and, and there's a real fun in that. There's an intoxication and a real boost in energy. And so to him, everything was sort of metaphorical up through, you know, the end of life and, and some kind of transcendence. And that was, that was all very clear. So we would talk about that. And then I would go and write a piece of music that seems to kind of somehow explore that idea. And then, you know, we might iterate on it, and but he'd get to a place where it's feeling good. And then the team would all have the ability to kind of listen to it and, you know, loop it while they, while they work in on the game or they code or whatever. And then, of course, as the build started to take any kind of tangible shape, I would immediately then start to play test it and carve up the music to say, okay, you know, it. I don't write tracks. I don't write just loops. Like this has to be a thing that's living and breathing and and, and dancing with the player. I, I feel this way in general about scoring games, but Journey in particular, it, it was essential that you know, if the player goes and does this, the music needs to somehow react. And if the player goes around that thing and does something different, the music should do that. And if the player stops and goes and just sits down and meditates and sets the controller down, the music should acknowledge that, you know, I don't like when things are just sort of static and, and, and forever um, trapped in a, in a given state. And so I would just play the game and start looking for those opportunities, how to make this work. And then, and then invariably what would happen is, you know, I'd write a, initially just a two minute piece and set it to loop just to kind of see how it works atmospherically before working out the more particular details of how it's going to, elegantly come and go and build itself up, take itself apart, all those kinds of details. And uh, some kind of happy accident would occur where, you know, strings would come in right as I come around this corner and behold a, a vista and think, oh, wow, that was, how do I make sure that that will always happen? You know, how do I, how do I ensure that it's not a happy accident, but it's a happy, you know, mandate. And so there was a, just a ton of this kind of trial and error. And I'd never done anything of remotely this level of complexity. So you know, thank God they needed so much time to work on the game and it was so behind schedule and everything. Cause I used every minute of the three years. I worked on it absolutely till the very last day where it was off to gold mastering at the beginning of 2012. Um, and uh, just constantly iterating, constantly fine tuning, constantly looking for opportunities, uh, play testing and realizing, Oh, you know, players aren't, they're not even going over to that area very often. You know, I, 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 I don't, I had this whole idea that we needed to do some big musical statement and I'm realizing it's just so off the beaten path that, you know, nobody would notice. But meanwhile, players are going over here a lot and, and, and I, I kind of underestimated that and the music is not really equipped to deal with that. So it's just a lot of all this kind of thing. <laughs> it sounds like an, an enormous uh, growing period, like growing your, your, your craft learning. Oh, and, and I mean, certainly it must've influenced everything you've done since. Uh, Without question, uh, and especially yeah. philosophically. I mean, no, no doubt my craft as a composer and particularly um, music designer, a term 
that I like to use that just kind of refers to the difference between the writing music versus designing the interactive systems that really make it come to life in the context of a game. I, I credit my friend and colleague Guy Whitmore with that phrase, music designer, but I, I really like that notion that we're, it's, we're not just writing music in the same way that a film composer uh, is not merely writing music and then just slapping it against picture, at least my favorite examples are they're they're really they're really scoring to the scene and they're really trying to be a co-storyteller with the um director and the actors and the cinematographer and all that and i see my role is is very analogous the goal is to get into the guts of the interactive systems no differently than the animators and the narrative designers and anybody else on the team so yes i definitely learned huge amounts about what's possible um and my 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 sense of ambition was expanded, you know, a hundredfold by by the end. Um, but even more importantly, just philosophically, those questions of kind of what is the music's purpose? You know, what is the what is the best way to support an experience? And also, just kind of what kind of games um, interest me. You know, what kind of what kind of uh, as both player and as composer. You know, and 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 you know how do I how do I best survey? I mean, it really it really changed me it was sort of the artistic equivalent of the old sort of fifties notion of sitting on the microwave and letting it kind of reprogram your DNA. You know, it was, it, was, <laughs> it, it really, uh, um, I had so much exposure to such a kind of radical way of approaching game design and storytelling that it, it fundamentally altered my sort of true North of, the best practices. And I love working with really disparate teams. I've been very lucky that since then I've worked with all manner of different teams from big ones to small ones to, to, you know, people who are making their first game to people that have been in the industry longer than I have. And I really enjoy the kind of diversity of perspectives that that brings. So it's in no way that I now only want to work with people like that game company. It's really no one like them anyway, that would give me a, a client base of one as it were. So it's not a very, not a very good business decision. Um, um, but, um, but I, I, uh, I do really cherish that. And I always thought to myself, if I ever were to make my own game, I would probably end up modeling my process very much on, on theirs. That the idea of the idea of the underlying point and philosophy of it being the most important and not just simply the, the forward facing mechanics or whatever, as obvious as that sounds, it really wasn't obvious at the time. So many games, you know, the first thing in the, press release would be, you know, the, the fidelity of the graphics or, mm -hmm. or, or, you know, the, the, the length of the campaign or blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like uh -huh. it was never about, you know, the thoughts that it kicks over or the way that it might affect you in contemplating your life or all those kinds of things. Um, and, um, so yeah, that, that, um, that, uh, it's just not to be underestimated, I guess, how much it seemed to really kind of alter my my perspective. It was exactly the right age too. You know, I was I was just young enough that I st sort of st still was mostly blank page as a person in many regards, but I was I was I was not so young that. Um, it would have been lost on me, you know, that I, that I would have, mm -hmm. it would have kind of, cause we all are stupid, you know, in our earlier days. And, 
every 10 years we look back and think, oh, I didn't know anything. And I definitely look back now and think, you know, I was so, because I was 13 years ago that, you know, came out 10 years ago, started on right. at 13. I was 24. Um, wow. and it's like I say, it's sort of just old enough to not be a complete moron. Um, <laughs> but the other thing that's crazy when you think about it, I remember this dawning on me shortly after it came out. It came out when I was 27. And from age 24 to 27, that's that's well over 10% of your whole life that you've just spent doing one thing. And I'd never I'd never focused unless you can unless you consider like high school or something as this single unit um which it's very much not in my mind. I mean it's this like massive quilt of a thousand different things. Um you know, I'd never spent that amount of time with essentially one goal. Now I I worked on other things in tandem. I was scoring movies and in you know other games and things but um but it was sort of this omnipresent you know it, it'd be almost the, the i don't know how well this analogy works but it's kind of like if you imagine driving around throughout throughout the city um making a lot of stops and whatnot but you have the radio on like on a specific you know talk radio host or something and so that you're you have this omnipresent voice no matter all these different places you're going and things you're doing there's this thing that's that's traveling with you that's very much how it felt with journey i i the game it, it never it, in a way it felt like it was never even going to come out it just it just was this and which i'm sure you know sony was wor- starting to worry about being the, the actual <laughs> reality at some point but it, it did just kind of feel like this is a thing i'm just going to work on you know this is like my this is like my gothic cathedral that i will i will eventually hand it off to my son and they will continue it and hand it off to theirs and none of us will ever have known what the final product was like you know (laughs) kind of felt like the truth is that wouldn't be that wouldn't be so bad uh in my mind uh uh, i I loved working on it i know it was extremely um it was extremely uh daunting for that game company it was very difficult for them um uh, I, I was largely oblivious to their internal challenges um, and just the, 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 you know, they were all giving all of themselves and, and so was I, but, but somehow that was more painful for them. For me, it was very joyous. I loved the act of giving it my all was, a, was like an ecstatic act for me. That's pretty cool. I mean, that's a pretty cool. Um, I mean, at 24, you're just really getting into the whole business, I imagine. Like, what, what, before this, before Journey, how how long had you had you been composing for video games? Well, my first commercial release of any kind, film or game, was Flow. Um, so, in, I I met Genova in 2006, and we did Flow with Nick Clark, the three of us, in it, as a student game, and it came out as a little flash browser thing, and then you know went nuts online somehow. And to this day, I don't understand how it went viral. (laughs) Like from a pragmatic standpoint, I don't understand because social media, other than like MySpace, you know, Facebook was still only for university students. And even then it was a small network of university students. Um, Like it was like 20 colleges or something. Um, And maybe more by that point. But I remember joining it in 2003 or four Whenever, for, like I was at NYU and I remember joining it when NYU, I remember we, we always laughed because we were the first, we were like, I guess Facebook is starting to slum it because it, it was the Ivy League schools only. And then they added NYU as the first non-Ivy League. And we were kind of like, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> um, but, um, 
but then I, yeah, I moved out to, to LA and, and uh, shortly after that. And so there was no YouTube or Twitter or any of the kind of normal ways that people spread information. It was literally, I guess, just manually emailing people or, or I guess messaging them a link in like AOL messenger or ICQ or something. <laughs> I just don't really know how it went as viral as it did because I mean, it was like hundreds of thousands of players almost immediately. Now, of course, it was free and it was a little flash browser thing. So there was no real barrier to entry that could slow down that spread. But uh, still, I'd never seen anything. I'd never imagined, especially because I was literally still a student. And um, so um, I uh, remember maybe a month or two later, Kelly Santiago, um, who was a classmate of Genova's, called me and said, Sony has approached us. They're, they're getting ready to launch the PS3 and they're looking for launch titles. They're going to be creating this new thing called the PlayStation Network where not every game has to be a box title now. Like that th there's this, you know, there's this concept that they're going to explore of a downloadable title and they want flow to be essentially the pilot of that plus one or two other games. And Sony's perspective, as I've been able to diagnose it, was that they figured, well, look, you know, we've got the big blockbusters, you know, they, they were already well into God of War uh, as a franchise and, and, you know, they had, they had uncharted, uh, cooking as a PS3 game. And, and, and so like they, and plenty of others as well, where they thought, okay, we're clearly, uh, no slouch in the domain of the big AAA blockbuster type games, but we also have an opportunity to be an incubator to sort of innovative and interesting and weird you know, Wes Anderson types, like we don't have to just be the Bruckheimers um, or, you know, later the kind of MCU type type uh, games. It, it, it was, it, we, we, uh, we can be the, the blend and, and that's going to be one of their kind of competitive differentiators from, from Microsoft. So they were looking for talent for this. Again, this was all just me assessing what appears to be their, their motivation, because it seemed like, if you make a game like Flow, you spend you know a million or two dollars. It doesn't really matter if it's profitable in the in the margins of a company like Sony. That's that can largely be seen as a rounding error. But if that kind of thing makes people go to the PS3 or think of the PS3 when they think about like where's the new interesting stuff coming? So we were just the stupid dumb luck beneficiaries of we made a weird thing that they apparently thought was interesting. So they approached us and. So we spent the better part of a year remaking and substantially expanding the scope of Flow, and it came out in early 2007. And um, I was I was very lucky that immediately on launch, um, I had the opportunity to start scoring two different films that I met. One was a director who was my neighbor. He was the first person I met when I moved to L.A. He literally lived in the apartment above me in Los Feliz. And then the other was a guy I had met. We were both students. He was at AFI getting his directing master's degree and I was finishing my degree at USC and he emailed the school looking for a composer. And so I scored his film and it ended up uh, playing at the Sundance Festival and winning the audience award and got a lot of um, got a lot of attention, including a pretty decent amount of notice for its score, because it's one of these movies, not unlike Journey, where. Um, it's very sparse on dialogue and it lets the music really live at the forefront of the experience. And it's also similarly in a way kind of like lush strings. And in so many ways, that score was my prototype to kind of like figure out some of the initial um, technique that would serve me on Journey. Um, it's, a, it's a Jordanian film. It also got noticed in that regard as well for being the first um, 
first feature film from the country of Jordan um, ever. And so uh, it was submitted to the Oscars, foreign language. And, and in fact, when it didn't get Oscar nominated, because it won like 40 film festivals and said when it didn't get Oscar nominated for foreign film, the LA Times did a big write-up saying this movie should have been a, a serious contender for best picture and the obvious winner for be- for foreign film. And the fact that it didn't even get nominated shows the Academy is just not watching the movies. Um, mm-hmm. Remember, it was like an ed- LA Times editorial that w- really, really came out in favor. And then right as that movie was coming out, I started working on that film for my neighbors, um, which was like a psychological horror film. And that film ended up playing at Sundance as well and and really kind of launched his career. We just had our our fifth or sixth movie come out like three weeks ago or four, four weeks ago. So that's been a real long running relationship. So it's like just by extreme dumb luck within that first year or so, it was like flow. And then those two movies all in quick succession. And it, and you know, um, it's not like I was suddenly, you know, kind of like it was a very Spartan living independent film and all that flow flow was actually, I remember it was one of those where, um, it felt like I had won the lottery cause it just was, it was such a, it felt like such an incredibly paying job relative to the $100 for this three minute student film that I had been used to up to that point. Um, and so the funny thing was it, it put me in a position to be able to, um, sort of survive on my savings, uh, for a couple of years and, 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 you know, it, it bought me just enough runway that the projects I was doing, I was able to invest in those projects like that, that film, Grace, the psychological horror film. I remember that was the film that finally killed my savings because um, I, I, I really, you know, I got really ambitious with the score. Our budget was like next to nothing. <laughs> and, um, and so I just decided to just spend money until it was, until it was good. Um, and, and I completely and totally drained my savings to zero as a result. Um, <laughs> and, um, so yeah, all those kinds of things were, were those early days and then just hustling nonstop, you know, and cobbling together a very Spartan living. Um, and, and I was, obviously I was in a relationship. We were living together. We had a dual income with no kids and that was also a truly essential part of the equation as well. Like I, I wasn't the sole earner, uh, but it was, it was literally, I mean, I would have to score dozens and dozens of little, you know, short films and things where they were like, we can maybe swing you 500 bucks. You know, it's just sort of like constantly, you know, or, you know, doing a ton of work for very little, but doing so much of it that I was able to just squeak by. Um, and, but it was great. I mean, it was one of those where I don't look back at that and see it as a time of struggle. I look back at it and I think, you know, I was, it was really it was building relationships. It was getting things rolling. It was, you know, um, meeting, meeting interesting people. I meet people, you know, I met a guy uh, somewhere in the midst of all of that who ended up being the one, you know, 13 years later who recommended me on the new uh, aliens fire team elite, you know, like, you know, so, I mean, it, it was sowing the foundations of my career in a, in a very legitimate way, even back then. Um, and you never know when things will kind of, blossom as it were. Um, but there's no doubt that in a way I was biting without realizing it, I was biding my time and then signing on to do journey. Um, you know, I was really excited about the game. I loved the concept behind it. And I remember just hoping people would, I, first off, I hoped that that game company could pull it off 
because I remember explicitly thinking, I've never heard of a game that has this type of ambition, you know, where Genova was very particularly talking about the multiplayer being yeah. this non-antagonistic, very kind of loving and supportive multiplayer dynamic. And I just thought, you know, players always find a way to, to like, there will always <laughs> be some troll or whatever. I don't see how you can make it totally troll proof and fuck me if they didn't figure that out. Um, but I, I remember thinking, I hope that you can figure this out because that sounds like the next stage of gaming. Uh, it made me realize I've been waiting my whole life to play a game that explores these kinds of more poetic ideas. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I can't believe I get to be part of it, but I never had any sense that it could possibly be as successful as it would turn out to be. I, that was the thing I just, of course, one always hopes that, you know, people will notice, but right. I didn't expect anything approaching what happened as a result. And, and then the, the night and day shift that that occurred with my career in terms of just, you know, the kinds of meetings I suddenly found myself able to, to, to get and the kinds of opportunities that started showing up and the kinds of games, you know, just the, the sheer quality of, of things. And, the, and the, just that, that incredibly astonishing and bizarre fact that people would, you know, suddenly now, like I would walk into a meeting and they would be more familiar with my work than I was with theirs, which is a complete 180 from anything I had been accustomed to up to that point. It felt bizarre, you know? Yeah. Good feeling though, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, it was, yeah, I mean, it, of course it's, it's a good feeling to know that, you know, there are opportunities um, and that I, I'm not 30 days out from missing my rent payments or buying groceries, you know, like there were definitely a few times where I thought I'm going to have to ask for help uh, uh, if I, if I, if something doesn't work out in the next two weeks. Um and it it to, to suddenly realize you know to to really kind of almost overnight not be in that position and it's not like i suddenly became some some uh you know billionaire or something remotely at, at all like that it just it the shift from instability to stability was was huge you know just knowing okay i have i have enough runway that you know i could if i if all my work stopped today, if suddenly there was just this complete and total halt, um, you know, I could, I could, la I could weather a storm for months, maybe even, maybe even over a year. Um, and I, and I've never gone that long without finding some kind of job. So like, it made me realize I'm probably, I'm probably don't have to worry anymore. Um, and it, it's, it, it was just an incredible, and again, I say all this as just a statement of gratitude. I didn't make Journey a hit, you know, it was like the audience collectively decided that by just reacting passionately and that the second order effect of that, of the industry going, oh, well, I, you know, the people that worked on that might be able to bring something to our project. Like I, I can't control any of that. None of us have any ability to mastermind those, those lucky things. And so, you know, you just have to hope that you're in oh, a yeah. position to, to, um, to kind of leverage it you know like like not to not miss out on the opportunity when it's when it's there and so it's just yeah well, it's it must, just luck you know it must be very competitive um i mean I'm, i think about you know 24 year olds now trying to get into uh you know composing music for video games that must be a a, a huge challenge for a lot of people uh just because I, I i'm sure there are just so many talented people who would like to make music for video games and there movies are and, so and many tv um and I'm sure that the, I mean, since then that we talked about how many games are coming out, but the industry keeps changing and growing and getting more competitive, I'm sure. Um, oh, yeah. 
but uh, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like it, art is art in general, music, art, all those things, you know, there's so many talented people and it is, I just imagine it must be such a struggle for, for these young people to get into the business. It, uh, it is. Um, that's a big part of why I like to remain, you know, I started a YouTube channel uh, that I really, the last couple of years have been pretty aggressively cultivating. Um, and in terms of YouTube, it's still a modest sized channel, but um, it's also, you know, there's, there's a good healthy dose of it that's catered towards younger composers where um, there's a kind of a strong podcasting element to it. Um, and I, you know, I, I look for excuses to hit up friends and colleagues of mine with noteworthy, uh, you know, games and films and things to their, to their uh, name and, and, and ask them questions and kind of put information out there that could be useful. And I put up a lot of behind the scenes about my own material where I'll break things down or I'll open up, I'll open up a mix session and step through and show all the layers of how a piece is built and how it was mixed and all that. Or I load the sheet music to tons of pieces of mine, you know, where you can see exactly what's there. You don't just have to kind of listen, but here's like, here's literally, and I'll add text commentary to say, you know, like in the context of the game, this would have been the loop point, but for the soundtrack, of course, it just keeps going and a lot of like, you know, I put a lot of that on there. The hope being, and I get good feedback in the comments and from emails and stuff that younger composers are noticing it. And my, my absolute favorite is when teachers who teach in, you know, composition programs uh, will email me and say, you know, we use your channel a lot in our <laughs> program uh, because um, um, that's, you know, there's a lot of resource to it. So I, 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 cause I recognize I'm so lucky that the least I could do is try to, to help, arm people with with anything that i know in case it could help them and part of that is because i just enjoy that that's just sort of me sort of you know doing my part for a community these are the kind of qualities i would like to see in the community and what can i do beyond just sort of uphold that in my own i I would you know I, i people can other composers can can treat the the up and comers as it were, uh, however they want. And I wouldn't begrudge anyone who has no interest in that. That's it's completely up to them. I, I like to add that vibe to the, to the community. Um, uh, but also I was a recipient of it. You know, there were a few composers that were extremely generous to me when I first moved to LA and they didn't, it's not like they, you know, that I got, I got work from them necessarily or, or that they, um, um, passed my name around in certain circles that just made me feel welcome. And they made LA not feel like this scary place where I didn't know anybody, you know, because I, I moved here knowing no one. I, I had lived in Manhattan for a couple of years when I was at NYU and I grew up in Denver before that. And, and um, so, you know, I came out here literally knowing no one. I had no family. I had no, I had no friends. And so I was, I'm lucky that, you know, a very close friend of mine happened to be the guy I met the day I moved because he lived in the apartment above me and we really clicked and, you know, we've had a great career together so far and, and he's just an all, all around wonderful guy. And, um, um, that was just luck of the draw. You know, it's probably the only neighbor I've ever really developed a relationship like that with in 17 years of living here too. (laughs) Um, and, um, and, uh, and then, but, but, uh, a professor at NYU had connected me to, um, to a composer that was out here a few years before me who had been one of his students. And he was like, Oh, you should hit up Jim. And uh, this guy, Jim Dooley had set up, he was one of Hans Zimmer's guys now. And he invited me down to Hans's place and was like, you know, come check out, we'll have lunch. And, 
And so I got to go. It was called it's called Media Ventures still, I believe, at the time. Now it's called Remote Control Productions. Um, and um, and uh, you know, he had me down and just made me feel very welcome. And we've been friends ever since. And and then um, there was another guy, Nate Barr, who I'm, I'm trying to even remember how we met. I think we met at like it was like a it was like a fan event. Like he was signing autographs because he had just done this kind of the the Eli Roth uh, movie Cabin Fever or or maybe it was Hostel like you know like these kind of slasher films that were modest hits and there was kind of like a you know there's there's events around town all the time um like there's a kind of you know horror themed um m- merchandise kind of shop called Dark Delicacies that would do composer signing events um, and they would have like, here's five composers who've done recent horror films and it's people for the soundtrack nerds to go. And so I went to one, I think that's where I met Nate and he was like, you know, we just hit it off and he's like, let's get dinner. And, and, um, and he, uh, you know, we became real close friends and he's had an incredible career since then. I remember, remember one of our sushi dinners a few years later, he was super stoked. Cause he was like, I just got a job. I'm really excited about. I feel like it's going to be something special. And he started telling me, he was like, you know, the guy that wrote American beauty, his name's Alan ball. He started making a vampire show with Anna Paquin. And they asked me to do the score and that was true blood. And, and um, yeah. that really launched his career to the next level. Um, he's doing the borderlands movie now. Uh, and um, he, um, um, uh, yeah, he's just, and, and he was married at the time to a singer named Lizbeth Scott who had just recorded a solo for John Williams on the movie Munich. And I found her voice to be absolutely incredible. And I asked him to put us in touch and she ended up being my singer on the end credits of I was born for this um, in journey. Um, That's her singing as well. So like to me, these people, these things don't happen in a vacuum. You know, it's like these, these people were really instrumental in me just feeling like I have a place in this community and I'm not some outsider who has to convince everyone of my value to be here. It's like, you are welcome. You know, you're, you know, convince the directors th- that it's worth hiring you in the game studios and those kinds of things. But the composer community, you know, pull up a, pull up a chair. Not every composer, re- you know, acts that way, but it made a big difference to me that those particular ones that I happened to meet did. And so I'd consider it a sort of a philosophical importance to offer up the same. Um, yeah. And um, so anyway, I don't remember how we got onto this, but there's, <laughs> no, it's good. It's really interesting. Um, I guess we should talk about the, the, the 10th anniversary, it, uh, release of, of these, uh, these tracks. Tell me, tell me about what, what is this exactly? What, what's happening with this 10th anniversary journey soundtrack? So this is an entirely new thing. Um, it is, you know, I, so a few things converged, um, a couple years ago, 2018, is that right? In the before times. (laughs) <laughs> must be 2019. Uh, yeah, for sure, the before times. But at some point, you know, Darren Korb, who has done Supergiants games, Transistor, Bastion, Pyre, and Hades, he uh, he and I are real good friends. And he called me up and said, you know, next year, I- I'm thinking this was early 2019, and it was later that year, I think. Uh, I was like, in the fall corresponding to PAX in Seattle. Supergiant was going to be turning 10. And Darren, who is kind of a Radiohead style, you know, uh, 
singer songwriter and record producer rock band kind of guy and unbelievably talented in that capacity um he reached out and said we had this idea of it'd be fun to do a concert and i uh at, to celebrate 10 anniversary 10th anniversary of supergiant and, and he said i can pick you know what i think are you know as it were the greatest hits of music over the last 10 years and put on a show and we thought it could be cool to do it as kind of like an orchestra show in some way and he said you know you want to help you want to help me with that when i was you know he and i are good friends and but i'm also just a fan of his work and so i said oh dude what a joy that would be so we set about uh creating a show where he would sing as well as ashley barrett who sings on all those games as well with him um and i would conduct like a chamber orchestra and we would transform all these songs into like you know s almost like little small symphonic and it, it feels operatic to me now. I was like, Darren, you've been writing operas and musicals without any of us realizing it because they're so lush in their storytelling and, and they're just they're so good. So we set to work on that um, and we performed it uh, at PAX. It was a huge, like sold out crowd and it went over amazing. And it was this big, you know, and, and, and Hades was not done. It was in early access and he still was very much deeply immersed in writing the music still. Um, after the success of that concert, Supergiant approached me and said, you know, would you be interested in producing a studio recording of this? You know, we like this went so well and, and it all turned out so well that, uh, a, a proper record could be a great way to memorialize it. And, um, I said, absolutely. I would be thrilled to produce that record and conduct it and whatever else you need from me. And so, um, so first things first, let me let me prepare for you some budget range options so you can know the difference between the kind of, you know, A, B, and C scale, where the A is, let's spare no expense, let's do it at Abbey Road in Studio 2 where the Beatles recorded, you know, let's make a record. And, you know, Hades Early Access, I guess, was going well. They chose the A option, so we started getting the, the wheels in motion to do this 10th anniversary um Supergiant record at Abbey Road in secret. And then I was also finishing up the pathless and I needed to go to Abbey Road for some recordings for that score anyway. And I was able to just by dumb luck, I was able to kind of align it so I could go out. It was one trip and we basically just spent a week there where, you know, we did Darren's record and then, and then, and then I did my pathless stuff. Um, and it was, it was like, that was, that was the very early days at that point then of 2020, because I remember we came back from Abbey Road and then, PAX East was happening. And so we did the concert again. Nobody knew we had secretly recorded it at that point, And it was going to be coming out later that year. And on top of that, I remember saying to Darren, uh, you know, the, the, um, you haven't finished writing the music for Hades. There's gotta be some use for this orchestra. We, you know, we're going to be in there with the studio with them. There's gotta be a place in Hades. So he said, well, actually I haven't finished the very end of the game yet. And when you kind of beat the final boss, it could really justifiably be an interesting moment if, if an orchestral piece is what emerges instead of what I've been doing. And then he said, I'm also starting work on this end credit song called in the blood. And it could be an interesting thing to mix orchestra that. So we ended up essentially co-writing those last two pieces of the game. And he really let me add in, you know, all kinds of material that was fundamentally not part of the song. And we, you know, kicked it back and forth together. And, and um, it was amazing. So we recorded all that in London and, and, in the midst of all this, you know, the, the most 
famous orchestra in the world probably is the London Symphony. They're the orchestra that recorded Star Wars, you know, Harry Potter. Uh, they, they've been around for ages. They're they're truly just superhuman talent level musicianship. Um, you know, just absolutely one of the most famous orchestras in the world. And somewhere around this time, a little before this, they had just randomly reached out to me, complete cold call, and said, if you ever, you know, are interested in working with us, we'd be interested in working with you, which was like a bucket list level like I, if I, if I could do that once in my life, I'd be thrilled kind of thing. And so they, um, when I was going to be at Abbey road with Darren and path and, and doing pathless, I invited their, their guy to come to the studio and hang out and, and we could brainstorm like, what could we, what could we do together? Because, um, while I record in London fairly often, I don't typically record traditional orchestral music. I'm always doing weird stuff, you know, like 18 clarinets and like on Abzu, you know, we did seven harp with, with women's choir. And, you know, like I'm always, I'm never doing things that really kind of justify hiring the London symphony because they're a traditional orchestra. And I, and I so rarely write traditionally orchestral music, but I just wanted, I loved the idea. And so we hung out, we got along great and said, well, let's find something. Well, so flash forward to six months ago and all these thoughts popped into my head at once. It was like, oh yeah, I still need to find something to do with the London Symphony. And oh yeah, that experience of celebrating the 10th anniversary of Supergiant Games with this kind of like orchestral reimagining was a really amazing experience. I wonder if there's any equivalent to that in my life. And oh yeah, Journey's about to turn 10. <laughs> and so it was this collision of... I, what would happen if I went back to journey and I completely rewrote the score um, as this lush grand symphonic statement. Um, and, and to be clear, you know, Darren's is a chamber orchestra. It was maybe 14 musicians. This is a 91 piece orchestra uh, with 32 voice choir. And for, I was born for this another, uh, you know, 10 or 11 additional singers um, and one violin soloist plus Tina Guo playing solo cello again. So it was like all told 134 musicians played on this new album. Wow. Um, so I reached out to the London symphony and, and I said, um, you know, assuming we can make it work with COVID and that kind of thing, you know, what do you think of, 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 of celebrating journey? If we, if I were to, uh, without any warning and kind of Beyonce style, just drop an album with, you know, no heads up on the day of the anniversary of the 10th anniversary that takes the entire score all, you know, it's about an hour of music start to finish and, and reimagines it in some cases, dramatically altering it. In other cases, just giving a totally new instrumental palette to what was before very Spartan. Cause you know, people have a tendency to think of journey as an orchestral score because the most memorable part of the game uses this small group of strings. You know, the very ending of the game has strings in there. And we had about 20, 22, I think, strings in, in the orchestra. But it's not, it, it, it's really overselling it to call it orchestral because that's that album and the, the score in, I mean, the, both the album and the score is kind of like the ingredients you would find on a given new age album where it's, you know, a few string soloists, a lot of reverb, a lot of synth pads, uh, you know, and then a little bit of strings and some, some vocalists. And it, it's really, it's really quite spare by design and very ethereal and minimalist. 
And because it steps out from that into something a little bit more lush for the very end of the game, but because that's the most memorable part, people have this impression of a very orchestral thing. But I thought, let's, what if we did it orchestrally in earnest? So my little, my little kind of catchphrase has become, you know, if, if we define Journey's original as a new age album, this new Traveler album, I'm calling it Traveler, um, uh, a journey symphony, which I don't actually love that title, but I had to go with that title. But um, <laughs> um, but I like calling it just Traveler. Uh, it, it sort of speaks to the ten years that have come, as much as it is an homage to Journey, and and I've, I've come to actually like that as just a standalone name for the album, Traveler. Um, it helps that that's one of my best friend's son's name, and he came to the session and hung out with us while we recorded. But um, um. If if we define journey as uh, as a new age album, this is like a Studio Ghibli album now. The idea is, what if we expanded the scope? It's still journey, and 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 working on these arrangements was extremely challenging because it was so easy to let the sheer size of the orchestra get away from me, and then it stops feeling like journey because it just becomes like this grand epic you know, thundering, romantic, like operatic over the top kind of music. And, and, but that's just fundamentally not journey. So the question was, okay, before the goal was, can I make a couple of instruments sound really big and full? Now it's, can I make a shit ton of instruments feel really intimate and, and, and warm and homey. And it was a, it was an interesting challenge. I hadn't done anything quite like this before. Um, and, and I'd certainly never revisited old music of mine in this regard in any way. But my hope is, my little fantasy for this album is, I know that Journey is one of those games for people because I get messages to this effect that it, they they kind of fantasize about being able to experience for the first time again. That, that first time when it was new and fresh and you didn't know what it was for a decent amount of people, remarkably, that's become a very sort of special moment for them as a, as a, you know, in their memory of being a gamer. And I know for a lot of people, you know, we got these beautiful messages about how cathartic it was. And, and, you know, there's like, there were a lot of uh, very personal stories that came out of it. And so for those people, my hope is that this album gives them the closest approximation that is possible to experience it for the first time again, because it's, it's, faithful enough to the original material that it's hopefully unmistakably journey, but it's fresh enough that it feels like a continuous parade of new versions and surprises and things that hopefully are, are nice. And hopefully, you know, hopefully it feels lovely the way I hoped the original felt lovely. Um, but in a way that they haven't heard yet so that they get, they get the closest that I think I can offer at least of experiencing it for the first time again. Um, and, and for me, it, it, the reason I'm doing that is because, as I mentioned at the beginning, I wouldn't have a career if it weren't for those people. You know, as much as I would love if new people find Journey or this new album because of this release and the hopeful kind of hype that might surround a 10th anniversary celebration, of course, it would be wonderful if new people find it. But really, the the audience size of the original was so much more be- so much beyond anything I could have possibly fathomed. That even if just some subset of those is who this album ends up finding, and they they 
feel my gratitude that I am directing at them for it, that I will feel, I'll feel great because I literally wouldn't have a career. You know, the, 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 the money that paid for the coffee I was drinking here and, and the opportunities that have come, you know, the, the swag, this was a, this was a gift from stoic, the guys that made the banner saga, this sweatshirt I'm making, like if journey hadn't come out, they wouldn't have called me everything about everything around me is a direct byproduct of journey having come out. There's so little in my life that isn't at this point, um, um, an overt offshoot of it that I just feel this overwhelming need to, to, to say thank you to them and, and, and offer up a thing that hopefully gives them a, you know, something that's newly meaningful. I, I, I can only, I can only hope because saying thank you or tweeting, you know, it's been a great 10 years, you know, fam, <laughs> It just feels so hollow and, and ridiculous. Um, but this way, hopefully, you know, I can uh, offer it up. And that's, that's the whole thing was, you know, very DIY as a result. It's not like Sony fronted the bills for this, uh, this album. Although Sony has been very supportive, don't get me wrong, and that game company as well. Um, but, um, but, uh, um, but yeah, this was a DIY I want to, I just, I want to make it. I want to self-finance it. I was very lucky that a, a dear friend of mine who was one of the co-founders of Ready at Dawn and uh, who had brought me in to help out on the Order 1886, um, he is very, very passionate about Journey and he insisted on on co-producing the album with me, which was which was an absolute boon and, 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 and we just went that much more crazy and his name's Andrea Pacino. He's an absolute just gem of a human being and, and um so yeah, it, it going to London with him and with my friend Troy and just, just recording this album with this unbelievable orchestra was was a you know as life changing as anything could get and 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 I hope that uh, that the uh, people who who hopefully find the album um, um, uh, recognize that it, it is for them and wouldn't have been possible without them and that's not that's not a platitude that's not a you know we did it collective community of you know, like when a, like when a, you know, celebrity, you know, like wins an Oscar and says, I want to thank my fans. It's like, well, no, no, they, to be clear, the voters in the Academy uh, <laughs> are, are responsible for this, um, you know, like, and that's, you know, or like the Golden Globes, you know, this, this, this 70 random uh, reporters are the people who you have to thank for this. Um, but in my case, you know, it really is that kind of collective hive mind of, of just people who, who spoke up and, and gave their support and, and bought the album or bought the vinyl or, or whatever. And I know I'm kind of going in circles at this point, but it's just, I don't, I just don't know how else to phrase it. Um, I wish I had a really snappy one liner uh, about uh, <laughs> why I, I, I've done this. And, but uh, at least technically your question an hour ago was what is this album? Uh, and hopefully somewhere buried in this mountain of, of rambling was an actual answer to that that felt satisfying well and of course people have to just listen to it to really to really answer that question because uh, yes. at the, end of the day that's the that's the that's the most important part uh is hearing the music itself um which must have been i mean it, it sounds like an incredible experience to work with the london symphony and and produce something familiar but new and that just sounds like a really cool uh I mean, it's a great way to say thank you to, to fans also like it, pretty cool opportunity to, to be able to do that and to do that really DIY, which I wasn't aware of. That's, that's neat. It was very emotional. Um, Cause journeys kind of become like this. 
people say, people ask me, you know, do you ever get tired of the fact that everyone keeps talking about journey and asking relative to all the things you've done since then? Um, And I've been lucky. I've, I've done a pretty decent number of things since journey came out and worked with a lot of really interesting studios and had really, you know, just incredible opportunities. And, and, um, and, but journey is the one constant, you know, and people have asked me, you know, is that, does that get tiresome? Like as an artist, aren't you kind of more focused on the new stuff? And and of course I am focused on the new stuff in terms of 99% of my thought is not thinking back on the things that I've done journey or otherwise. Um, uh, but, um, uh, I also recognize that I have a lot of composer friends, for example, that are by any definition, very successful. And in fact, there are some that, you know, like people that have worked in TV for decades, you know, have made untold millions of dollars, won Emmys, all that kind of stuff, you know, by virtually every metric that you could count they're they're more successful than I am. Um, but they've never had an experience like Journey. They've never had people seek them out and say, this music got me through the loss of my mother or this, I walked down the aisle at my wedding to this music or, you know, like, or cosplayers, you know, saying this, 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 I, 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 I've never cosplayed before in my life. I, I, I had to do, I spent eight months working on this Journey, like story after story after story times, times tens of thousands you know, so I, 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 I meet people who have never had an experience like that. And I, so I don't see it as this thing that won't go away. It's more like at the end of Star Trek Generations, the first uh, next gen movie, when Picard at the very end gives this little kind of mini monologue to Riker. And he said, um, you know, someone told me referring to the bad guy from five minutes earlier, someone told me that uh, time is like a predator that stalks us all our life. But I think of time as a companion uh, that goes with us on the journey and reminds us to cherish every moment as they'll never come again. Um, And um, to me, it was absolute perfect way to end that movie, which I think is a wildly underrated movie. But, um, but that um, I kind of see journey like that. It's become this, it's become this companion to my life. It's like at any given moment, I'm working on something and, 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 and there's still some kind of journey ambience, whether it's, People emailing me to say, you know, uh, those kinds of comments or young composers messaging me to say, you know, can I ask you a few questions about it? Or, you know, I get professors saying, can you do a Zoom masterclass with my composition uh, students to talk about Cherny or whatever? Uh, You know, even 10 years on, that still comes up. So I've seen it like it's become like this this old friend that I that I see, you know, that we don't we don't like live in the same city anymore. But we converge, you know, in our hometown or or at GDC or something. We see each other kind of regularly, and it's always nice to see each other, kind of thing. That's sort of what my relationship to the game feels like. Which is why, when conducting it, felt like, you know, I'm now, I'm now, in, I'm now, I'm now doing like a vacation with that old friend. We've said, you know, we always talk about doing a trip together, and it's been ten years, and we've never done it, so now we're doing it. It's like you raise the bar. And especially that music at the end, um, uh, you know, that I now call apotheosis, that piece in particular has really seemingly stood out with people. Um, I mean, it's no surprise given that it's attached to the most powerful part of the game. And I just, as composers in games, we always know that it, 
you know, it's up to the game to sell our music. It's not the other way around. So if people love some given level of a game, the odds of them liking your music go up exponentially. So I'm entirely indebted to that game company for, for cracking the code on how to end that game with, with, uh, with gusto. And the music was basically good enough to not distract you as being something taking away from the experience. And then this flip happens where then people start attributing the ending to the music when I, I don't believe that's the case at all, but I still end up being this lucky beneficiary of all this attention, even if I, in a way don't deserve it. And that's not trying to sound like false modesty. It's just, they're reacting to the game and the music is just the thing that it, they can tangibly aim at. Um, and in my, in my opinion, that uh, that's, that's really not humility. I think it's just an analysis of the situation and I'm insanely grateful and lucky, my God, lucky to, um, to be the beneficiary of that. But in any case, because of that apotheosis has become kind of like the single and it's the one that's been performed mm -hmm. by orchestras repeatedly um, over the years since then and, and, and concerts and that kind of thing. And, and, um, and, um, so conducting that, I, I saved it for the end of the recording session and, you know, giving that downbeat with the, uh, London symphony and playing through that piece, even with all the changes I made to it and stuff, um, it, it was overwhelming. And I, I never feel people say, oh my God, you know, this music made me cry. And I've never like had that to my own music. I don't see how that could happen you know it's like it's like could you imagine writing something that then makes you weep it's hard to it's you you work really hard to try to make it feel very authentic and, and maybe even very emotional um but it's you just then hope it worked you it's hard to like i i've never been able to experience that but i did find myself feeling sort of choked up and it wasn't the music itself it was just sort of this turbocharged you know ratatouille where he goes back in time it, it was it was this thing of feeling like all the, the whole ten years and everything that's come out of that is compressing into this moment now, and it's yeah. just sort of overwhelming. And it was it was an unbelievable experience. That's really cool. No, that's that's just pretty amazing, honestly. I mean, and that moment in the game is a very emotional and powerful moment. And and I think it's I think you're right to say it's it's a combination of factors. The music is that tangible bit, but there's something about being in the game, being you know having climbed up that mountain, getting over that struggle, being interacting with the game in, in a way, you know, rather than just watching something, being participating in it, and then having that music and having that feeling all sort of crash in on you at once. It's really, it's no wonder that, pe that people remember that moment more than any other. Um, I mean, look, I know that everybody, including me, really struggled with it. It took a long time to get the ending right. I mean, it, 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 it was, it was a huge question mark for so long because the play tests were showing that up through the mountain in the snow and the way that all ends, that was starting to really work for people. And it felt like, wow, this is sort of, this is poetic. This is uncompromising. Um, it says a lot through very little. And then you'd kind of have this final level, which felt like such an afterthought. And it, it's supposed to be the cathartic culmination, you know, apotheosis means sort of that moment of transcendence. It was supposed to be that. And at best, it felt like a kind of fun, you know, now what we would think of is the tone of a post-credit sequence, you know, where there's kind of like, oh, by the way, there's another little fun thing we're going to throw in here. Um, and, and, the end, and, and for the longest time, the ending, at best, at worst, it was just stupid, but at best, it was that. And it took a long time to really feel like, you know, we understood what's the final 
chapter of this story? What is that last statement? How do we end this in a way that doesn't just slather on more of of what we've done or add in something extraneous that's not needed? And how, you know, how I don't know how any of us managed to stick the landing because even that music yeah. of, of Apotheosis, I, I rewrote that music a hundred times and I tried stuff that was, you know, all over the place emotionally, really ethereal and quiet and sort of surreal and really fast and energetic. And I tried all kinds of things in between. And and then it was just one of those acts of desperation where one day I came into my studio and I just thought, I don't have it and I don't know what it is, but I'm just going to not think. I'm just going to try to write something that's sort of inspired. Because I would usually like put the game up on my screen. I'd had a, de- a test kit from Sony that I could play and I could I could actually kind of play the game as I was writing and, and see how it felt to you know play the music in my computer while I'm playing the game, like an immediate feedback. And it was very important for the process. But this time I thought maybe that's clouding me here. I, I, maybe I need to just kind of make it more abstract and just take a step back and, and, and write a piece of music that answers this question of what, what is that sort of apotheosis supposed to feel like? I wasn't using that word for it yet. It just, but that transcendence, that grand catharsis. And by some miracle at the 11th hour, it clicked because we were literally like days away from recording the orchestra. Um, and so like it was, the, you know, the strings, the orchestra, again, is an overstatement. But you know what I mean? The, our, 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 um, our modest uh, ensemble in Macedonia um, uh, was booked. You know, that time was set. You know, we didn't have a big budget. So it's not like we could reschedule or or do pickup sessions later if I came up with a better idea. It all funneled down to this and just kind of... Sometimes you get lucky when the pressure is sufficiently high. Um, and I think that the same thing really was happening with TGC on the design and art and all that kind of fronts as well. It's wild. <laughs> it's wild to think how close we came to it all just not working. Oh, man. Yeah. Like journey without sticking the landing. That would be terrible. <laughs> it, yeah. It, I mean, it, it would be an incredibly <laughs> lame. I, I, the analogy I always like to make is that it's it's like parachuting from 30,000 feet recognizing that you have to hit a one foot by one foot landing zone. You know, it, the, the ability to, you know, normally a someone who's skydiving would, you know, have like this half mile region that they can land safely in, you know, because there's going to be things that move you around and, and it's not the most precise, you know, maybe military paratroopers can be more precise, but <laughs> short of that, you know, you're kind of just like, the goal is mainly just to land alive. Uh, and, and, but this game was one where the target area was so narrow because anything outside of that, it was, it was lame. The game, it was either going to be this amazing kind of poetic gem or the most pretentious nonsense that meant nothing to anybody. <laughs> and it didn't really seem like there could be much in between. You know, it's yeah. not like, it's not like the kind of game where people would go, oh, you know, I thought it was a little artsy and lame, but um, but the multiplayer, you know, like the deathmatch mode was just so fun that it kept me going anyway or whatever. Like there's a lot of games that survive based on some ancillary feature, you know, where they, they you know, it's like, oh, well, I mean, think about GoldenEye 64 where, you know, the multiplayer absolutely is what thrusts that game into level of classicness. I mean, it's it's single player campaign that sort of steps through the GoldenEye movie is fun and it's fine. That game became one of the all-time classics because it was sort of the seminal couch co-op of that of its time. And it paved yeah. the way for the halos and everything of the world. I mean, it was so... And the hilarious thing is that Rare, you know, they weren't supposed to put multiplayer. Nintendo forbade them. They, they literally snuck it onto the cartridge before it was too late, after it was too late for Nintendo to stop it. 
Um, and, and, uh, cause they, they believed in it. And, and, it, but so it was one of those where, you know, the campaign, it could be cut and the game would basically be no less of a classic. Well, journey has nothing cuttable in that regard. It, it, it's right. like the whole game is the golden eye multiplayer and nothing else. Like there's nothing else that, that it could possibly, you know, uh, be outside of, outside of what it is. So if that thing doesn't work, um, you know, just <laughs> can <will>. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool, man. Um, congratulations on, on this new project and all your success. And, um, thanks. Yeah, I'm excited to see how this goes. I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to, to listen to it and, uh, yeah, it's awesome. Thank you for taking the time to talk. Believe me. me thank you. You know, I, um, none of this without the signal boosts of this kind of thing and what you're, what you're doing for it. Uh, you know, as we mentioned, it's a, it's a, it's a world fraught with content, uh, yeah. <laughs> now. And, uh, so even with the 10th anniversary and even with the, the prior kind of accolades to help support it, um, there's no guarantee that anybody would ever find it in, unless I can kind of kick over those rocks. And so I just thank you to you for your willingness to, Oh yeah. To uh to to help get the word out um through this piece uh because um you know I think I need all the help I can get. <laughs> well, the world is a chaotic and often terrible place but music makes it better so. Well, I gotta, I gotta hope spread the music. <laughs> That's certainly no small part about why I got into music um but yeah. uh but um yeah, in any case. Um so yeah, well thanks again man. 